Hello, I'm Tony Davitt and you're very welcome along to the second episode of The Bridge, a Cisco podcast. Over the course of this series, we'll be exploring a variety of themes that represent some of our key strategic pillars and look at how these impact our customers and the wider business world. You'll hear from a wide range of guests who'll share their expert knowledge and their insight as to how technology represents a bridge to the future of businesses and beyond. Each month, we'll host a panel discussion on the topic in hand, and then we'll wrap up with a final segment, Technology Bites, featuring another guest who can offer deeper technical analysis for us on the challenges and innovations that our team represents. In today's episode, we're tackling end-to-end security. With every new communication innovation, our expectation as consumers and as businesses shifts to expect greater speed and increased flexibility across more devices. This in turn leads to more infrastructural complexity and greater security requirements at every turn. So how can companies ensure that their security systems are designed to adapt to the widening threat landscape that innovation sometimes creates? It's a big topic with a lot to get through, so it gives me great pleasure to introduce you to my two guests today. The heavy hitters who will help me tackle this topic are Professor Donna O'Shea and Martin Lee. Donna is a leading national figure in cybersecurity research and innovation. She holds the position of HEA Sally Chair of Cybersecurity at MTU, with extensive experience in leading large-scale national cybersecurity initiatives. Martin brings over 18 years experience to his role as technical lead for security research within TALIS, Cisco's threat intelligence and research organization, and is EMEA or lead for strategic planning and communications within the group. You're both very welcome along. Let's dive right in and find out what the threat landscape looks like today. Martin, I might come to you first and get to get us started. In security, we always seem to start a conversation by scaring our, our audience as much as possible with horror stories. Before a change, can you take a few moments and talk to me about Cisco Talis' strategy around cybersecurity and how we're helping our customers stay protected? Sure. So uh, Cisco is all about uh, enabling people to conduct their business and professional lives securely um, over the internet. Talos, we are Cisco's security research and threat intelligence organization. So our focus is very much on following the threat landscape identifying what it is that the bad guys are up to, what are the new things that they're, that they're doing, and then identifying, well, how can we better detect and block these attacks so that we can secure our customers and allow people to you know, conduct their everyday personal and business lives over the internet without, um, w- without fear of attack? A lot has changed over the last couple of years for everybody, and no more so than the threat landscape. We seem to be inundated inundated with ransomware attacks and phishing calls. Donna, how do you see that the threat landscape has evolved and how remote working has also changed this dynamic? Yeah, just to pick up on a point that um, you made in relation to Martin, first of all, you know, fear, uncertainty, or addict tactics or FUD tactics are all making us desynthesized to some pretty serious threats that we're actually facing as a society today. Um, This is a challenge because it can actually lead to complacency. And unfortunately, now is not the time to be complacent, especially when it comes to cybersecurity. Uh, The World Economic Global Risk Report has indicated that cybersecurity is one of the highest likelihood risks over the next 10 years, along with global um, and climate action failure and digital inequality. Um, In terms of cybersecurity, there has been an evolution in the threat landscape as a result of COVID. 
COVID has reshaped the way we approach everyday processes, the way that we bank, the way that we view houses, the way we even try on clothes. And digital is actually the enabler behind these changes. It has basically shifted the way that we actually work and live. And COVID has advanced digitalization by approximately five years. And as the rate of digitalization increases, so too do the risks. And we can see this because over the past year or, or since COVID began, we have witnessed approximately a 500% increase in ransomware attacks. And we've also identified um, more and more security uh, vulnerabilities in both IT and OT systems. We've seen a 300 increase in phishing attacks with cyber criminals using social engineering tools targeting individuals. And at the same time, we know that working from home results in employees be becoming more likely to engage in risky security behavior with serious challenges around even simple issues such as password setting and cognitive dissonance. Um, and cybersecurity is putting the advancements associated with digitalization at risk and is now seen as a linchpin in building the digital resilience necessary to future-proof our businesses. Thanks, Donna. Um, some interesting challenges there, some serious challenges, especially things like 500% increase in ransomware and 300, I think you said, in, in phishing. So, Martin, how can companies protect themselves against these? Well, I think the first place to start is actually being aware of the threats. It's very difficult to protect yourself against something that you don't even know that it exists. So uh, that first strand of protection is, yeah, is in being aware. So um, understanding what ransomware is, um, how it can get inside your organization, and then think, well, how do we protect ourselves against this? Um, a lot of this uh, really isn't rocket science, and it's all about following the uh, best practices that we've had over over years. So, um, you know, in terms of, of the basic things, uh, the very, very basic thing is, for goodness sake, uh, install the updates for, for your various pieces of software. Um, and if you can, have those on automatically so you don't even have to think about it. Uh, backups, you know, the is heel of ransomware and ransomware attackers is having a backup, um, and not only a backup that you think you've made, but also one that you've checked that you can restore from. Um, so just those two pieces of hygiene will take you a long way. On top of that, of course, it's not quite enough. Um, certainly, you want to have up-to-date um, uh, endpoint protection on your various devices uh, so that we can detect when the bad guys get on it. Certainly uh, ransomware in terms of attack is very, very noisy from a, um, an antivirus protection point of view. Uh, we know what ransomware looks like. We know how to, how to detect and block it. And if you have that endpoint protection on your devices, that will give you an awful, awful lot of protection if the bad guys get in. And then we've also got to think, well, let's stop the bad guys getting in as much as possible. Um, certainly those uh, very tempting phishing links that are trying to fool you to click them. Um, you can tell your users, don't click the link, don't click the link, don't click the link. And sometimes someone will. Uh, so we need to keep the uh, malicious stuff away from the endpoint user as much as possible have the protection on, on the endpoint to detect it if it does get through, and have the backup and that instant response facility there ready if something does go wrong. 
that will get you a long way. And the other piece, of course, is um, uh, user authentication. Um, as we use uh, digital systems as increasingly part of our lives, um, you, we have to be aware that fraudsters um, are very, very adept at masquerading as users. So thinking about um, not only using passwords, but also backing that up with two-factor authentication, and even better, having biometrics in there as well. Um, there's a lot of stuff out there. There's a lot of people who can help. Um, it doesn't, it really doesn't need to be anything overly complicated, but it starts to be being aware of the problem. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree with Martin more than the points he's made. I think it's a very comprehensive response. Um, you know, it, it, there are simple, straightforward measures that companies can take to protect their business, whether they're small or large. Um, and I think Martin has covered it comprehensively there. Great, Donna. And actually, that point about smaller edge actually brings me on to my next question uh, to you, Donna. Uh, when we see a news report on an attack, it's usually a large multinational that's been breached. So my question uh, to to uh, Donna and, and Martin is how security and threats differ if they do. Yeah, I think for SMEs um, first of all, it's really important to, to acknowledge the importance of SMEs to the Irish economy um, and to every economy across Europe. Um, in Ireland, SMEs actually employ 65% of the total employees and, you know, they account for a third of all Irish exports. Um, the challenge for Irish SMEs, I think, at the moment, um, contributing to industries such as construction and retail and manufacturing is, first of all, they really lag behind other countries such as Finland and Denmark and Spain and Sweden, and Belgium, um, in terms of e-business technology adoption and digitalization. Um, and the challenge for SME is that Digitalization is viewed as a cost and not an opportunity. And our SME sector actually lacked the confidence in adopting digitalization. And a major reason for this is actually concerns related to cybersecurity. For those SMEs that have actually gone digital, cybersecurity is a concern for their business, but they do face unique and particular challenges um, that, are, that are basically unique to their industry. Um, first of all, they don't really invest in the same level of cybersecurity training. Um, so they have low cybersecurity awareness of the people actually employed within the organization. Um, there generally is inadequate protection of critical, uh, in, inadequate protection of critical and sensitive information. And, and the challenge for SMEs in particular is that they actually process highly sensitive and critical information. Um, they have a less budget, um, they lack ICT security professionals, and the challenge is, I suppose, they don't have the same mechanisms to attract really high caliber um, cybersecurity professionals. Um, and I think there's also a lack of suitable cybersecurity guidelines specific to SMEs. And for SMEs listening, I just want to uh, refer you to the UK's NCSC Cyber Essentials Programme, if you actually are looking for a really um, good um, guidelines to actually follow. Um, and cybersecurity is actually seen as a separate function rather than an integrated part of their IT solution for SMEs. Um, and for SMEs, you know, a lot of them use cloud-based services, but, you know, they have major challenges with phishing, um, you know, web attacks and, and, and malware. And these are the busy, biggest causes for cybersecurity incidents in, in SME sectors. Thanks, John. And Martin, to your mind, are there material differences in the security and the threats in your experience between SMEs and large multinationals? Well, certainly in terms of, of protection, there's only so many ways that you can protect an organization, whether that's a large one or, or a big one. Um, so the protections tend to be the same. 
Um, I think maybe the big difference, if you think about a large multinational corporation, they've got an in-house accounts team, they've got in-house lawyers, they've got in-house this, that and the other, um, that an SME that is focused on one particular, uh, their own particular niche in their own particular area won't have. But in the same way that you'd expect an SME to partner with a law, uh, a legal organisation or professional services organisation to write their contracts of employment, to write their... Uh, contracts of sale. I think we can envisage exactly the same model being used for IT and for security. Uh, If you don't have the expertise in-house, and of course, if you're an SME, why would you? Um, Go partner with um, with experts, go partner with the best out there so that they can set up your IT system uh, in a way that works for your business and also helps it uh, be secure. You don't have to be experts. Um, in terms of threat, I think there's one thing to to consider that there's um, many different types of threats out there. And and typically, we try and consider the world as a bad guy would. Um, So there are bad guys that adopt uh, a very much a mass market model, and will send their attacks to as many organisations as they can without regard to whether they're large or small. Um, Certainly, SMEs um, potentially would get caught up in that kind of attack or find themselves a target. Uh, And then there are more sophisticated attackers who are specifically choosing their targets. Um, often SMEs think, well, why on earth would a sophisticated attacker choose me instead of a large multinational, which is a good point. However, they may actually be at risk because of who their customers are. And actually, a um, sophisticated attacker might be trying to hit a large organization, but go about that through going through one of the suppliers, um, one of the partners of that organization who may well be an SME. So I would certainly caution SMEs to um, be aware of thinking that actually in the grand scheme of things, they're insignificant to the threat actors. Um, You may well be on somebody's radar simply because of who your customers are and who you work with. And in any case, many threat actors just don't care. They're going after the money and they're going to try trying to hit as many systems as they can across the globe. And yes, that, um, that is going to include SMEs as well. Uh, thanks, Martin. So just turn the question on its head, though. What's the opportunity here for SMEs? Well, I think there's actually an enormous opportunity here. Um, being a large um, corporation, it can come with a lot of baggage, a lot of um, old ways of doing things, whereas SMEs being smaller and nimble can actually adopt the best security practices, I think, in many times easier than a large organization can, and to use security as a differentiator within the, within the market and actually being able to market their services and their products as, as Donna said, you know, adopting that digital model first, and then also baking in the cybersecurity. So that becomes something which is inherent to them and is also a differentiator for them in the market. Cybersecurity isn't going to go away. Um, It's a a major, major issue. It's only going to become more important um, as time goes on. So really, I think there is an opportunity here for small, nimble 
SMEs adopt best practices now and be able to offer your services digital first, but also secure. Um, I just want to move maybe to a different topic now. Um, and Donna, I'll come to you first. It, I don't know, it's an area that you're heavily involved in, which is around digitization and the implications on security on IoT and smart manufacturing, if you want to take a few moments to talk about that. Yeah, um, yeah I think that this is a very important uh subject to actually touch on. Um, manufacturing companies' consistency feature as basically one of the most targeted industries. Um, and 40% of manufacturers reported a cyber incident in 2019-2020. And it's important to note that the average financial cost um, of these attacks are typically in the region of €330,000, with an IoT focus incident um, for an IoT focus incident, and basically about 7.5 million for a data breach. So, you know, the cost and implications for cybersecurity attack for these industries are very, very significant. Um, and it's also very important to note that there are particular challenges that these industries face. Um, the first is that in these industries, they are using cyber physical systems and Internet of Things type devices to drive advancements in terms of digitalizations um, to allow organizations basically to drive down costs and increase optimizations. But these connected things obviously increase the attack surface of a typical network. Um, and they also in increase the risk of uh, east-west and lateral-based attacks on a network. And that's the first challenge. Um, the second challenge is over the past decade, what you've seen in these industries is that there's been a convergence of IT and OT systems. And traditionally, OT systems were what they call air-gapped from each other um, and the internet. Um, however, over the past decade, computer and communications, which themselves are critical infrastructures, are increasingly tying all these types of infrastructures together. And this growing interconnectedness from networking means that a disruption in basically one network can lead to another disruption or another. And disruptions in manufacturing systems are really big concerns because in smart manufacturing systems and in, um, in this industry, availability is its primary uh, you know, security concern. Um, they want to keep their operational um, uh, and their supply chains working and they will do this at the expense of other cybersecurity concerns relating to integrity and confidentiality. And then across all of these sectors, um, there's also a growing need for this verifiable access to data and records um, to deal with the challenge of greater mandatory reporting and compliance requirements. And these are arising as a result of, say, the NIS2 directive, um, which basically wants higher traceability in very regulated industries such as the pharmaceutical sector. And we can also see this increased regulation in other sectors as well, such as in the financial sectors with the with the, with, with DORA. Um, and these are some pretty big challenges and, and, and I'm trying to respond to these challenges as, as part of my role as um, principal investigator in the SFI Research Centre. Um, and we're looking to work with companies in, in helping them solve these um, cybersecurity challenges and allowing them to adopt and advance their digitalization strategies. Great. Thanks, Donna. Um, there are plenty of challenges from a threat landscape perspective on putting in the infrastructure to protect companies from attack. But one real big challenge I think companies are facing today is the skills shortage of security professionals. I'll come to you first, Martin, and Donna, I'm sure you'll have a great perspective to add on this also. 
Well, you know what? It always surprises me that uh, we don't have everyone working in security. To be honest, it's an absolutely fascinating profession. Um, it, you know, what more would you want from a job? Uh, it, it's interesting. It's constantly changing. Um, it, it's it's well paid and it's in demand. Um, so, yeah, it, it, honestly, if anyone is is listening, it's an absolutely superb career. There are many, many resources out there through which people can um, can help train themselves up in order to enter the workforce. Um, notably, the Cisco Networking Academy has many um, has many courses. Uh, within Talos, we um, offer many, many pieces of software that are, that are free, open source, that you can download. We also have tutorials that you can use to train yourselves up. So there's no shortage of opportunity. Uh, nevertheless, yeah, we, we have less people working in the domain um, than, than we would like, and it's been like this for, for, for many, many years. I think ultimately the, the solution is going to be twofold. Um, yes, we want to encourage more people to, um, to work um, in the domain and, and allow people to get those skills and, and enter the workforce early in their career. Um, but also, I have to think that we're going to have to uh, face the fact that we will never have enough people. And actually, there's a big role here for artificial intelligence to help support um, human operatives and human agents. Um, it, it's not going to be a matter of artificial intelligence replacing people's jobs. It's going to be a matter of artificial intelligence um, highlighting what a person needs to look at and maybe taking away some of the dull work and doing that automatically and highlighting the interesting stuff where, where a human with the human facilities and human capacity for uh, invention and understanding can actually come in and resolve what's happening. Um, so in terms of, uh, of a career, um, goodness, yes, I think there's many, many opportunities here. Yeah, no, absolutely, completely agree. And maybe Donna might ask for your perspective on it from an MTU perspective of uh, what what colleges and universities are doing uh, to try maybe help the skill shortage. Yeah, I just want to echo what Martin has just said there. You know, there is no shortage of opportunity um, at the moment to work in the cybersecurity industry, and there has never been a better time to work in the cybersecurity industry. The skill shortage is a major challenge. Um, it's impacting our ability to attract further FDI investment into Ireland. There are a lot of job openings and we will see this increase. And we're going to see this increase, especially in countries like the US and Ireland and Amsterdam, because these are the countries that gain the greatest in terms of FDI investment, especially in terms of cybersecurity. Um, the challenge with cybersecurity, and this is from my own, from working on this issue for a number of years, and I just want to talk about maybe the challenges that I see instead of the actual job shortages, is that cybersecurity is actually a, a technical subfield of computer science. And for most um, graduates, the route into cybersecurity is typically an undergraduate degree, and on completion of this, they would take um, a postgraduate degree in cybersecurity. And this makes the entry into the profession actually very difficult. And it also restricts participation from disadvantaged sections of our society due to the cost and length of upskilling. And this is a challenge that I'm particularly focused on as, as, in my role as a, as a HA Sally professor. Um, and it has created a market around the whole certification piece in, in cybersecurity. You can't gain access into the profession unless you have a certification. But the challenge is there are so many certifications and it's extremely confusing for graduates to understand a pathway to gain into the industry 
And then it's equally confusing for employers trying to recruit graduates with the proliferation of certifications that are actually out there in the market. And then there's another challenge. And the next challenge is around the whole job roles and job specifications. And in the US, they typically use the NIST-NICE framework where they've identified 52 job roles in cybersecurity. But in the UK, they use different job role titles for basically the same job roles. And this is adding huge um, confusion. And the EU is also trying to develop its own standardized set of job roles. So there's no standardized, well, there, there are different organizations trying to standardize it, but there's not a consistent, I suppose, approach to um, job roles and what's ex- actually expected in terms of roles and responsibilities when you're actually um, working in the industry. So it, it is very complicated. And um, I guess the good news is that, you know, we are working on these issues. Um, and this is something that I'm acutely aware of um, in the project that I'm leading called Cyber Skills. Um, and this cyber skills project is has been funded by the HEA um, and it's been funded um, by the tune of 8.1 million. And we're working together with other universities such as University of Limerick and Technological University Dublin and University um, and UCD. And we're working together um, to work with industry to identify what job roles they have a challenge in filling. And we want to create academic pathways in, a, in alignment with these real immediate needs but we also want to change the way that we're actually delivering academic programs and pathways. And we want to empower learners to take an entire pathway or a single module or basically to design their own award based on their unique learning needs. Um, and all of these pa- modules and pathways are accredited, um, meaning that you can build towards a formal award. And I guess the key message here is that we're focused on education and not certification. Um, and we want to build innovative cybersecurity pathways that industry want we want to empower learners to pick and choose their own learning, and we want to facilitate new forms of learning. And I, we are currently enrolling for academic pathways in January, and, and you can check out our website, cyberskills.ie, for more information. But the key thing here is, as well is that I'm also calling out for industries and employers to work with us in identifying the job roles that they can fill um, so that we can prioritise our, our pipeline to make sure that Ireland has the graduates that they need in the future. So I'd like, like to, to add to that, one of, one of the issues that we have is not only these various different standards um, defining different job roles, but because cybersecurity is such a new profession, the job roles are all changing anyway. Um, the job that I that I have now certainly didn't exist when I started my career. Um, you know, you, you, you can't be at school today and think, oh, you know, I'm going to grow up to be a cybersecurity strategist or because this just didn't exist. And certainly the jobs we have now, I think, are not going to exist in, um, in 15 or 20 years. Um, so... Uh, Certainly, there has to be a degree of, of flexibility in the in the job market, and certainly for the candidates for that job market to understand this is something which is in constant flux. Um, but given that there are opportunities, there are also very much opportunities for different types of um, of of people. Um, of course, the, there's going to be a default pathway, which is going to go through higher education and, and yeah, potentially postgraduate study, um, which is great if that's for you. Um, certainly, some of the best cybersecurity professionals I've worked with uh, have actually been high school dropouts. Um, I, I'm on my second career incarnation myself. I came into cybersecurity um, after um, 
yeah, having left a career in um, and actually life science. So there's many, many opportunities for different people from different backgrounds because it is new, because it is continuously evolving. There's there's constantly green fields and new ecosystems that are growing up that people can fill. Um, in terms of impressing employers. Um, I think many, many uh, employers, and certainly my, myself as a hiring manager, are most impressed by, by people who can show me stuff. Um, so not necessarily uh, lists of certificates that they've achieved, but but show me your projects. Um, show me what interests you. What have, what have you done in your in your spare time? What have you played with? Um, and we've had people come to us who have um, analyzed threats in their spare time or written blogs um, or installed and customized or written their own um, security software. Uh, and that kind of thing is open to, to anyone who's interested in it. And, and it's that kind of extra stuff that I think really, really impresses employers. Yeah, that's some great points there. Um, like for me, I, you know, one of the big ones uh, you mentioned on it is um, industry and education working together actually to solve a lot of that. I think that is really, really key. But another one that actually leads me on to my next point is, and you alluded to in terms of uh, complexity. Um, I really believe there's a fear of security, that it's highly complex to understand the attacks, complex to deploy security solutions, and even harder to manage. Um, but for me, it doesn't need to be so. Um, so Donna, I'll stick with... Um, a question to you first, which is, is security too complex? Yeah, I, I've struggled with this piece. Um, and I, I'm going to give you two two sides of uh, my, my thought process in this. You know, the reality is cybersecurity is a highly specialized area. And cybersecurity is hard. Um, to be a highly skilled cybersecurity specialist, you need to have a deep understanding how networks work. If you're looking at software, you need to understand how to write code first, but then also how to write code securely. And you need to know how systems work. And cybersecurity solutions are also complex because you need to consider human, social, organizational, economic, compliance, and technical factors. And you need to understand the relationships between them. And then we're working in a landscape where cyber criminals are also increasing in terms of sophistication. And they're exploiting vulnerabilities, not just in human, but in the systems as well. And, and it does make the, the landscape incredibly complex. Um, and I think that the language in the industries as well creates barriers to actually understanding and appreciating that there are straightforward, tried and tested measures and techniques that companies can use now in defending their networks, their systems and their data that do work. OK, so even in the face of all this complexity and, um, you know, and challenges, you know, there, you know, it isn't actually um, overly complicated to get your network secure. I think there is a huge opportunity, you know, in the industry not to be just looking at cybersecurity as, as a technical subdiscipline going forward. I really, really think there's an opportunity to look at an interdisciplinary approach to cybersecurity. We need to get people from various disciplines, from cultural studies, from social sciences, from, you know, psychological, um, you know, backgrounds, from people with economic backgrounds, you know, to look and, and work as part of a team to develop and the next generation of cybersecurity tools. And I think this is one of the, the biggest areas where there exists a huge opportunity in, ter you know, in terms of um, cybersecurity solutions for the future. 
Thanks, Donna. Um, Martin, I'm sure you'll have some thoughts on this too, um, around complexity and maybe what Cisco was trying to do to maybe uh, abstract some of that complexity. Yeah, I, I think cybersecurity is is as complex as you want it to be. Um, I, I often draw the analogy with football. Um, you know, football, it's, um, it's all about human physiology and fitness. It's about the physics of the ball and how the ball bounces and moves. It's, it's about the, the science of the pitch and getting the grass of exactly the right, um, the right length and human psychology of putting the team together. And, and if you think about all the complexity in it, you really forget the big picture, which is football is all about a game of kicking the ball into the other net and, um, and stopping the ball being kicked into yours. Um, and in many way cybersecurity is the is the same thing. We're we're there to keep the bad guys out. Um, we're here to, to to keep systems functioning, um, maintain their availability, maintain the confidentiality confidentiality of the uh, of the data, and keep the bad guys out. And to do that, yeah, we have a team of people. Um, we need different skills. We need different um, uh, areas that we need to to focus on. And maybe some of those, yeah, are going to become quite quite technical but uh, yeah i think fundamentally we can remove a lot of the the, the complexity from this uh, certainly within cisco within our product set um yeah we we try and make things as easy as possible for both security analysts who are, who are on the ground keeping the bad guys out and also for uh, the managers and directors who want to know how well that they're that they're doing um, make what you need to know and need to do very very easy to achieve and the complexity which is going on behind the scenes, abstract that out as much as possible so that we're not overloading people. Um, there are many areas, certainly for people who are particularly um, technically focused and, and love that complexity, there are many, many challenges there. And if you want to specialize in, um, in, in very, very complex bits, um, yeah, that's great. We need people to do that. And similarly, as Donna says, yeah, we also need people who understand the um, the human nature and can support people in doing what they do and making things easy um, easy for them to do and easy for things to do securely. Uh, but I think that key bit is it's all about teamwork. It's all about uniting people together with different skill sets based around a common a common goal and um, being able to measure how how good you are at meeting that goal. Finally, I'd like to finish on looking into the future, what the trend, threat landscape could look like, and also where Cisco is putting in its investment into development of new solutions in the future. I'll come to you first, Donna, I am on the threat landscape. How do you see this evolving? Yeah, I don't see the threat landscape evolving, you know, terribly, except it's going to scale up. You know what I mean? I think we're going to see more ransomware, more phishing, more web-based attacks. Um, I do think that the way that we're approaching cybersecurity and our cybersecurity solutions is going to change. There's been a huge emphasis now on, you know, recognizing that there are vulnerabilities and challenges around our traditional perimeter-based approach to cybersecurity. Um, and, you know, the, the reality is, is that, you know, our perimeter-based approach to cybersecurity could, is best described as being crunchy on the outside, but soft and gooey on the inside. Um, and what we're seeing in, you know, in the area of smart manufacturing and, um, and with increasing number of things inside the network, these things can't be trusted. Um, and you know, the traditional perimeter-based approach as well, looking at the whole area of hybrid working isn't actually going to be effective in the future. And there are there is a huge amount of research being done and, and, and zero trust, and there are providers already, including Cisco, that offer solutions in zero trust, but it does flip the traditional 
um, approach to cybersecurity on the head. It basically treats every network user as a possible danger. Everybody and everything requires vetting before receiving access. Um, and it basically um, flips the approach to network security, where it's assumed that everyone inside the network was a good actor and did not pose any cybersecurity threat. And, and that, I think, is a major um, trend that we'll see going forward. Around the area of zero trust, you know, you're going to have to be uh, authenticating and encrypting every single piece of information inside your network now. So that introduces a whole set of um, challenges that organizations face. And as well, around zero trust is just a set of cybersecurity principles. Um, there is a lack of architectural frameworks actually to implement uh, zero trust in um, real world settings. Um, I think uh, another uh, piece that is going to be a major trend going forward um, and um, Martin actually touched on it earlier on, is about the AI. But I think for me, AI is really about improving the resilience, um, you know, in the face of the environment that we're now working in, which is these nebulous perimeters, increasing number of things, um, and the availability of these powerful and um, exploit kits. Um, we need to face the fact that a security breach is no, no longer a matter of if, but a matter of when. And we need to shift our security mindset from instant response and basically invest in security solutions that allow us and organizations to adapt to this ever-changing and evolving threat landscape. And we need to face the fact that we need to implement solutions that give organizations more resilience in the face of a cybersecurity attack and allow them to recover quickly after an attack. And I think that's where, for me, the major trends in, in the future are going to be. Thanks, Donna. And I'm probably going to rob your uh, definition of perimeter security of crunchy on the outside and gooey on the inside at some point in time. So lastly, then, Martin, uh, taking into account uh, some of those ideas there from Donna, where, do you, where are the key areas of investment likely to be for Cisco in the future? Well, certainly the threat landscape, I think, is, is driven by, by two things. Um, primarily, it's driven by how we're using technology, um, which is which is. It, it's changing. It's changing massively. It's changed massively over uh, over the past 18 months uh, and certainly over the past 10, 15 years or so. So uh, as technology brings all of these advances and changes to our lives, it also brings opportunities to the bad guys. Um, human nature does have that dark side. There will always be thieves. Um, there will always be entities that don't have our best interests at, uh, at heart. Um, I'm sure the very, very first markets um, had con men in them and scammers. And, um, you know, here we are maybe 5,000 years later, and we, we're still faced with the problem, problem of con men, thieves and scammers um, in our online environments. So um, from our point of view, it is about following how we use technology, how the bad guys are abusing that technology. And um, yeah, to paraphrase uh, Donna, yeah, we want to keep that outside slightly more crunchy so it becomes more difficult for the bad guys to get in. And then um, more than gooey, I'd say distinctly sticky and porridge-like. So if the bad guys do get in, they find it very, very difficult indeed to achieve their objectives. I, I fundamentally believe the way that we're going to solve uh, largely the problem of cyber insecurity is through economics. Um, Cybercrime is largely an economic crime. The bad guys are doing it um, in order to earn money. And if we can make cybercrime less profitable 
for the bad guys, then um, they're going to go away and they're going to do something else. Or at the very least, they will go and hit somebody else. So um, if we can make our systems in our own organizations and our own countries more secure, and we're making life more difficult for, for the bad guys, then the bad guys are either going to do something else or they're going to go elsewhere. And I think ultimately, that's the challenge for all of us. Um, it's about making cybercrime difficult, make it tough, make it gooey and you know unpleasant for the bad guys. The more we can do that, the less cybercrime there's going to be and the more that we can use technology for, for our own ends and to um, further our own lives and societies. Well, that's it for our panel discussion today. Martin and Donna, thank you both so much for your insights and knowledge on end-to-end security. You can find out how to keep up with both Martin and Donna's work in our show notes. And while you're there, why not like and subscribe to the series too. As always at this point in the show, it's time for Technology Bites, where we deep dive into our topic from a technical perspective. Joining me today is Frank Hoban, Security Systems Architect at Cisco. Frank, we heard a great conversation there earlier, and one thing that came up a few times was zero trust and identity. Can you delve into that a little bit more for our listeners, please? Uh, Yeah, sure, Tony. So... Uh, you know, traditional security approaches assume that anything inside the, the the corporate network can be trusted, but the reality is that you know this assumption really no longer holds true. Um, a lot of the time, the, the the data and applications we access are no longer behind a firewall, and more often than not, you know, users can connect directly to work applications over the internet using you know personal own devices. So. You know, in effect, the perimeter has shifted uh, out to the user, and then zero trust addresses this uh, deperimeterization. So it's based on a on a simple principle: never trust, uh, always verify. And then this type of security approach, you know, treats every access attempt uh, as if it originates from an untrusted network. So you know, access won't be allowed or shouldn't be allowed until that trust is demonstrated. And then once users' uh, devices have been deemed trustworthy, you know, zero trust then can ensure that they've access only to the resources that they, you know, absolutely need. Uh, you know, this can prevent then any unauthorized, you know, what we call lateral movement through an environment, and then can address, you know, common security challenges that, you know, come to the workforce, such as, you know, phishing, malware, credential theft, uh, you know, that kind of stuff. So. We can do this then by really securing the three primary factors, I guess, that that make up the workforce, namely, you know, users, their devices, and then the applications that they're actually accessing. So from the user perspective, zero trust requires then that that user be given access to only the applications they need to do their job and really no more. Uh, It requires user identities be verified uh, using a method like you know, strong multi-factor authentication and then establish, you know, that they are who they say they are at every single access attempt. Devices then, you know, are the things that we use to gain access to these resources. So corporate managed personal devices, things like desktops, laptops, tablets, mobile phones, etc. And then under zero trust, these devices, you know, can be checked at every access request, you know, to ensure that they meet security parameters, uh, aren't introducing risk 
and, and you know then that as well as that that they should be monitored over time to detect poten potential threats you know or anomalous behavior and then the third one is really applications which of course you know are the tools businesses really use to operate you know applications they can be located anywhere it could be in the cloud uh, hosted in-house uh, or on physical systems um, application access then should be really governed by you know what we call adaptive access policies you know which should be created based really around the sensitivity of the data in the the, the, the application and then this can ensure then that access is provided, you know, only to users or groups of users then who need it and from the locations and devices that are actually trusted. So, you know, we get multiple benefits then from an approach like this. Obviously, you know, better security, of course, which is the ultimate goal, uh, the ability to manage dispersed infrastructure. So in lots of cases, these, uh, you know, that would be applications and assets that could be spread across many different cloud and hybrid environments. You know, what we want, uh, what, what we all want really is a simpler approach to security because, you know, historically organizations have layered these security solutions to block attackers. And then over time, this can create security gaps for, you know, attackers to compromise. So with, with zero trust networking, then security, can be seamless and more well integrated throughout networks. As you were talking there, you know, uh, before you mentioned the word uh, simplification, um, I was thinking, you know, that's, you know, to our listeners, that might sound um, all very complex. So maybe you could take a few moments to talk to us on that point uh, specifically about maybe what Cisco are doing to uh, help customers manage uh, security infrastructure. Yeah. Um, well, look, we know the security industry, you know, hasn't made things easy for us. You know, we've been forced, you know, to pick individual solutions from an industry that's, you know, really rife with, you know, incompatibility. So vendors, you know, may be coming to you with products that are more secure, but many vendors, you know, design their portfolios around single products. So, you know, creating solutions that don't easily integrate with one another and then only address individual uh, threat vectors so it's no surprise then you know with this approach that companies find themselves with an average of you know around 75 security tools per enterprise environment and then on top of this you know positive shifts like moving to the cloud uh, other elements of digital transformation you know they end up being this double-edged sword so although they drive you know your business forward they do put additional pressure onto security teams so you know teams already entrenched in you know the process of keeping your business secure you know they're now asking themselves questions like you know how can i maintain visibility across my infrastructure how do I find security guys to integrate all these tools that don't work with one another? And then, you know, how can I maintain security as, as this perimeter evolves? So, you know, while the goal has always been defense in depth for security, you know, what we've actually ended up with is expense in depth. So a lot of security technologies deployed at different parts of the network. And, you know, then not only was the acquisition cost of all these things extremely high, but the resource costs as well to manage and maintain them are also really high. So, you know, it's really time for a new approach, uh, you know, that kind of redefines security, enables security teams 
various processes, technologies, you know, to really work more cohesively, you know, strengthen your security across your network, endpoints, cloud uh, applications as well, while reducing, you know, all these complexities. And this is where the platform approach comes in. In Cisco, we've been building and planning towards this for years. A lot of vendors will claim to have the platform approach, but Cisco are uniquely positioned as we operate right across all the major verticals. So from the endpoint to the cloud, data center, enterprise and application stack. Our platform, Cisco SecureX, it's a cloud native built-in platform within our portfolio and connected to the customer's infrastructure. The good news is every Cisco Secure customer is entitled to SecureX, so it's integrated and open for simplicity. It's unified in one location for visibility, and then it maximizes operational efficiencies to secure your network, endpoints, cloud, and applications. So, you know, with the platform approach, it gives you the ability to connect all the security tools together to unify that visibility, enable automation, and then strengthen security right across your organization. And when your tools work together, security is simplified, and that's what we're aiming to do with uh, Cisco SecureX. Yeah, some great points there, especially around teams working together and also the actual solutions working together to um, optimize the uh, security of the networks. Um, last but certainly not least, um, Frank, I just want to ask really what's coming next? I asked of Donna and Martin um, and from a technology perspective, um, maybe have some thoughts on that. Yeah, sure. Um, I'll, I'll mention two things, really, Tony. Um, you know, one challenge for IT departments across organizations um, has remained the same for, for decades. You know, how do we balance security and productivity while, you know, allowing our employees to access uh, corporate resources? So often adding security can be seen as a complex and, and time consuming activity. But there's, you know, here this is an opportunity to have security, you know, be seen as an enabler to the business, you know, while providing a more seamless uh, experience and also strengthening security posture. So, you know, it's no secret that passwords can be a real headache, right? Both for the people who use them and the people who manage them. Uh, when it comes to identity verification, passwordless is, is, is really the next big thing. You know, at the end of the day, you know, passwords create higher friction for users. They slow down business productivity and really are inherently a weak form of, of user authentication. It's, it's actually estimated that, estimated that anything from, you know, 20 to 50% of all IT help desk tickets each year are for password research. Uh, and over 80% of hacking breaches, you know, involves some kind of brute force or, or uh, attack or the use of lost or stolen credentials. So those companies, you know, that already have a strong foundation like uh, MFA, multi-factor authentication, and user device checks in place at, at, at login, they're now in a position to introduce passwordless, uh, you know, and provide a more frictionless experience for users, while also, you know, inter, you know, reducing that administrative 
burden and overall security risk uh, for the enterprise. So, you know, essentially, uh, it will give them the ability to enable their users to log in using, you know, something like a single biometric uh, biometric authenticator uh, to access their applications. Uh, you know, the overall benefits then here are obviously better user experience, you know, a reduction in things like user frustration and an increase as well in user productivity. Uh, from, you know, a reduced IT time and cost perspective as well. You know, we're looking at a reduction of the overall administrative burden of password-related help desks, uh, help desk tickets and, and resets that I mentioned earlier, and then stronger security posture as well. So uh, the elimination of threats and vulnerabilities really related to passwords. So, you know, we're talking about things like phishing, stolen or weak passwords, uh, password reuse, brute force attacks, uh, all that kind of stuff. Thanks, Frank. Sounds like an area that will only continue to grow in importance. So that's a wrap on episode two of The Bridge. Make sure to subscribe now to be notified of new episodes. And if you've not heard it yet, why not listen to episode one, The Future of Work? We'll be back next month with another great lineup for you. We hope you'll join us.